Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March 28th, 2022. I'm talking to you, as always, from the West Coast of the United States. The headlines are astonishing as they tend to be these days. Biden now is saying that his comment about replacing Putin expressed his own personal outrage, wasn't formal American policy. Um, lots of headlines about the Jan Sick panel associated with Jenny Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas, as well as uh, some remarks by a federal judge who believes that uh, Trump most likely committed crimes over his 2020 election. Surprise, surprise. Uh, the Wall Street Journal has a headline about prosecutors advancing a tax probe of Hunter Biden. We haven't heard about him for a while. Uh, the uh, president of Ukraine, uh, Vladimir or Vladimir uh, Zelensky, is in the headlines as he tends to be a brilliant media figure, personality, political leader. He gave remarkable interview to some Russian journalists. And how do all these tie together? Are there some dots joining all these different stories about Zelensky? Ukraine, Trump, Hunter Biden. There, of course, is, as a woman, perhaps not at the heart of this, on the edge of all this stuff. Her name is Marie Yovanovitch. Uh, everybody knows her. She's perhaps one of the most famous women now in the world, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, the woman who stood up to Donald Trump. She has her best-selling book, Lessons from the Edge, which has just come out. And I'm thrilled and honored that Marie is joining us from somewhere in the Washington, D.C. area. Marie, how does it feel to be at the heart of history? You told me earlier that you're a bit shy, but you're in the middle of everything. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I'm in the middle of everything, but um, but it's, it's, it's great to be here out on the East Coast, being able to talk to you on the West Coast. Lessons from the Edge, Marie. How did you come up with the title? It's an interesting uh, title of a book, and it 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 actually brings to mind uh, an interview, a very different kind of interview I did uh, last week with the New York Times writer John Markov, who who wrote a book about uh, a biography of Stuart Brand, one of tech's big personalities, who man a man who quite literally lived on the edge. The subtitle of this book is The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. I don't think Marie Yovanovitch has had many lives. You've had one life, haven't you? I've had one life in uh, many different places that, um, you know, if they're not at the end of the world, uh, they are certainly on the edge of the world, like Somalia, uh, Kyrgyzstan, some other places. And uh, so it, it seemed like a fitting title. Did you ever expect, Marie, to be in the heart of everything? Could you ever have imagined in your wildest dreams or nightmares that things would have worked out like this? No. I mean, I was a, a very, you know, ordinary and dutiful diplomat. Um, I, you know, spent 33 years in the Foreign Service, followed the rules, uh, never would have expected that my career would end in such, in such a way. Never? I mean, are you quite as, as straight and as law-abiding as you say? I, I read in the media while I was doing some research for this interview 
that uh, you have a coffee cup which says, uh, fuck you, Putin. So you can't be quite as respectable as you suggest you are. Well, you know, that's kind of cross type. Uh, I, I bought them in bulk when I was in Ukraine and I would give them away to visitors who would, um, you know, the reason they were there, right, official visitors, was to express support. And, and this was would have been in the period 2016 to 2019 uh, when there was a hot war uh, in Ukraine, but it wasn't making headlines. Um, but, you know, many, um, many uh, uh, Americans knew uh, that this was a hot war um, in, in the heart of Europe and um, wanted to express support for Ukraine and opposition to Russia. So um, that, that was their mission. And um, when I gave them the cup, I mean, there would always be this kind of surprise from the state ambassador, um, but you know, people would sort of titter and they would all agree with me that your coffee tastes so much better out of that mug. Yeah, well, I hope you're gonna send me one of those. I don't drink coffee, but I drink tea. It'll certainly cheer up my morning cup of tea. Uh, Marie, this idea of the edge, how does it work itself out in terms of your personality? As you say, you're a rather shy character. You're not pushy. You're not. You're, you're, you're the antithesis, um, maybe not so much of Putin, but of Trump. There's nothing narcissistic about you, nothing showy. As you say, you've lived on the edge, and as circumstances have it, you've been swept into the center of history. But there must be a heart in the edge which is you, isn't there? Someone who's right in the middle of it all. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure quite what, uh, what your question is. Your question is, what is the heart of Marie Yovanovitch? Are there characteristics, principles, a, a morality that defines you when you come to summarize yourself and your achievements in your life? Well, there are. Um, and you're going to be disappointed because it's more of the, you know, kind of the staid diplomatic uh, um, profile um, rather than, uh, you know, something uh, more flamboyant. So I think what really defines me is that I um, came to this country as an immigrant. My parents had grown up in Europe during World War II uh, during very, very difficult times that um, I think the Ukrainian people are, are living through something quite quite similar in terms of the death and the destruction and the devastation. And they came to the United States and they finally sort of had safe harbor where they could bring up their children in peace. Um, and, um, you know, they came with nothing, but they worked hard and they, you know, just believed in the idea of the United States that, um, in the idea of freedom, because they knew what autocracy was and that you could, um, you know, live in safety and in freedom. And they were always so grateful. And they brought my brother up and me with those, with those ideas that we were fortunate and that we had to give back. My parents spent their whole lives giving back. They were both teachers and they brought up generations of, of students who still remember them. It's really, it's really nice. And, you know, when it came time for me to think about what did I want to do? I mean, as usual, when um, you know, well, maybe not as usual, but at least in my case, a couple of detours along the way. But then I kind of married up my my interest in foreign affairs, in travel, in history, in politics, uh, along with um, you know the belief that I needed to give back to the American people. And I joined the Foreign Service um, back a long time ago, back in 1976. So I think that idea of service, the idea that we need to give back. 
um, I think really kind of shaped me. It's the idea not just of service, but of public service, isn't it? And it's in contrast with the the critique of expertise and of the public realm, which is articulated uh, by, by many uh, neo-authoritarians, particularly, I think, uh, on the Trump wing of the Republican Party. Is this something that particularly troubles you? Their rejection both of the idea of public service, which they can't imagine, and of expertise? Well, and in fact, not only can they not imagine it, they're quite contemptuous of it, that somebody would forego a very, very large private sector salary um, for a government salary um, because one feels that it is important work that must be done on behalf of the American people. It, it, it is very um, disturbing because we live in a democracy and the American people elect the president and that president uh, can be a Republican or a Democrat and it changes over time. But there is a continuity of government, and that continuity is made up of public servants. And we serve not only the American people, but also the president that is in office at the time. Uh, you know, there can be a robust, and often is, discussion of what the right policy choices are, how to move forward, and all of that. But once the president or, you know, his or her, hopefully her at some point, team makes a decision, uh, then the president and the American people should feel confident that the um, that public servants or foreign service officers are implementing the policy of the president at the moment. And that's that's that kind of um, you know the belief of the American people in their institutions, which are at the end of the day all about the people that are in them, and our um, duty to do our duty is really what keeps America strong and moving forward. Uh, and I think what we saw in the past administration was the hollowing out of institutions as um, President Trump either, but the policies of the administration either uh, caused people to leave or they were hounded out of office. Yeah, and it, it contrasts one of your greatest foes, I think, when it came to the issue of Ukraine was Rudy Giuliani. And you note in your book that he was once a public servant. He was once the mayor of New York who did a great job in the post 9-11 world. And you had to fight this man who'd gone over to the dark side. Uh, how does that happen? Not necessarily with Rudy Giuliani, but there are other examples of people like Giuliani who have done great work in the public interest and then have essentially destroyed that work. How, how, how does that make sense? It doesn't make sense. I, I, I really, I don't understand it and I can't really explain it. Um, he was, as far as I could tell, um, working to advance his own personal interests as well as the personal political interests of the president, which is antithetical to uh, what should have been happening. Moreover, Rudy Giuliani didn't even have a role in the administration. He was just, you know, another person who was in President Trump's circle, but he had no official role, and yet he had outsized influence. Do you think, um, Marie, the fact that you're a woman and that you stood up to Giuliani and Trump, do you think that 
annoys them even more. I had a, a fellow female resistor from DC on the show last year, Fiona Hill. Seems like she drove them mad as well. Is there something perhaps female about the obstinacy of standing up for principle when it comes to public service or can men do it as well? Well, men do do it as well. I mean, look at the, um, look at just at the first impeachment inquiry where there were many um, male witnesses. So just in that little example, I mean, there are many men who also, in my opinion, did the right thing. Your book comes- address Sorry. perhaps the part of your question, which is, um, I do think that there was a misogyny in the Trump administration. And, um, you know, just when I listened, or when I read the transcript of the perfect phone call, uh, between President Zelensky and President Trump back in July of 2019, which was released, of course, a couple months later, which is when I, when I saw it. When President Trump talked about me, he talked about me as the woman. And it just felt like I was reduced um, reduced to my gender. Yeah, and he did the same with Hill, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. It's astonishing. One of uh, the nice things about your book is it comes from a, with a delightful blurb from uh, Madeleine Albright. Um, I interviewed her, wonderful woman, first uh, female U.S. Secretary of State. I interviewed her for my How to Fix Democracy show three years ago in Kansas. She was a delightful person, delightful interview. Um, when it comes to female service in the foreign service, how much work is still needed to be done in, 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 your, in your opinion, Marie? Is the State Department doing a good job? Is it pioneering the role of women or can they still improve? Before I answer the question, if I could just say, um, first of all, you know, condolences to the Albright family. Um, but Secretary Albright was such a pioneer, not only as a woman, but also um, in her passionate voice for democracy and human rights. Uh, you know, she comes from Eastern Europe, uh, just as my, my, my parents did. And I think she understood in a way that, that only people who have lived under autocracy, the dangers of autocracy, and she was such a strong voice for, um, for democracy and, and for Ukraine. Um, I, I, I met her in, uh, when she visited Ukraine. Uh, I mean, I had worked for her, obviously, at the State Department, but I was so junior that I didn't really uh, know her. And um, when she came to Ukraine, it was a special moment for me because as she did with so many other women around the world, and I'm sure men as well, uh, you know, she took uh, some time alone with me uh, to provide kind of advice and encouragement in what was a very difficult job. But back to the, the question about women in the State Department, mm -hmm. it, it, as an institution, has it done a pretty good job? Well, I, I think the State Department um, tries uh, to uh, put in policies that will, you know, create a level playing field. But, uh, you know, the Foreign Service is a, is a tough lifestyle where you're moving every couple of years. Um, whether you're a man or a woman, your spouse uh, or significant other um, often wants a job. And, you know, not everybody can work remotely even today. Um, so it's, you know, and then children and putting them in, into one school after another. It's, it's a terrific career. It's a wonderful lifestyle for certain people. It's not for everybody because, because there are challenges. So 
when you look at that um, and you look at the fact that the State Department is, is a reflection of our society, right? And the role of women in our society. Women still um, bear most of the burden, if that's the right word, or the responsibility of not only household work, but raising children. And I think that at a certain point, um, when you know your work becomes pretty all-encompassing in some ways, um, where it's not only uh, work in the office, but then you know when you get senior, presidents in the country will call you at nine o'clock at night and expect you to be available so that you can transmit a message back to whoever in, in the United States. When um, you also have responsible for responsibility for little ones at home, how do you balance that? And so I think a lot of um, a lot of women um, find that it's 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 difficult to do. Um, I mean, one of the things I always tell people is that um, actually, while the work is still very intense at more senior levels, often you have greater ability to schedule your days. When you're the ambassador or running a section, um, you can tell people when you want to schedule that meeting and you can run out to the piano concert of your son or daughter and then come back and have that meeting. It's harder to do that actually when you're junior because you can't just tell the boss, hey, you know, I, I need to run out and do this. So there are still a lot of challenges. And I think um, just as, you know, every other company in America is, is, is dealing with some of these things, we are as well. Um, and we have the added kind of challenges of, a life on the go all the time. Marie, how much do you worry about the future of democracy in America? Uh, as I said, I had Fiona, show, uh, Fiona Hill on the, on the show last year, who worries about what she calls the Russian way of life, a post-industrial decline in America. Uh, obviously, since Hill wrote her book, the war in Ukraine has happened, the Putin's invasion, the defeat of Trump. But are there similarities between the American and the Russian ways of life? I think that there are challenges in our democracy right now. And I think most people, well, I think a lot of people in America recognize that. Uh, you know, when I came back, I was... You know, I had always believed that our democracy was kind of there and I took it for granted a little bit, uh, even though uh, my parents, you know, has just instilled this love of it in me. And what I came to understand is that we need to, you know, tend our democracy. We need to defend it if it is to endure. And, um, you know, I think some of our forefathers understood this, um, but I think over you know, the centuries and over the decades, we have tended to take our democracy for granted. And um, that became very evident to me when um, you know, we had a president of the United States who was ready to trade on um, his office for personal favors from another um, leader. You know, and when the transcript was released, that was there for everybody to see, including other autocrats, including other bad actors from the United States or from other countries that you know, if I flatter the president, if I give him a little bit of what he wants, then maybe I can fire this ambassador that's standing in the way, or maybe I can get this deal done that, you know, isn't so clean and tidy. So that was, that was, I mean, that kind of hit me personally, but it was also an undermining 
of our diplomacy, of our national security interests, and it was damaging. So that that was one thing that really hit me in the face um, as I was coming back, and then when I came back, and then of course, um, you know, the wholesale kind of you know scapegoating of minorities, targeting of journalists. It's very dangerous, and it creates a space where people feel that they can say or do whatever they want. Uh, and um, that is very problematical. And then, you know, fast forward to the elections when President Trump refused to accept the results of the election. And then there was a vast effort, not to say conspiracy, to undermine and undo that election culminating in the January 6th insurrection. I never thought I would see something like that in the United States. And um, it really, uh, it really worries me. And I think that we have a lot of work to do to find out exactly what happened there. Um, the January 6th committee um, hopefully will um, be able to shed a lot of light on that. And hopefully um, the Justice Department, as evidence comes forward and if merited, will start to investigate and prosecute those who um, were behind this. Because this strikes at the heart of our democracy and we need to hold people accountable. Trump has had the distinction of being the only president in the history of the United States to be impeached twice. He was not held to account the first time. He was not held to account the second time. And I think that emboldens Trump and those who follow him uh, to keep up with their undermining of our democracy. And that is very dangerous. Marie, we've done a lot of shows about Trump. So many, too many, probably. Um, one of my favorite was with the uh, ABC correspondent, White House correspondent, Jonathan Carl. He wrote a book, Front Row at the Trump Show. There seems to be a division with Trump watchers between those who see him as a essentially a rather idiotic virtual reality show host who um, has been having fun and isn't entirely serious versus somebody who is not that different from Putin. What's your reading of Trump? Is he just an American virtual reality Mountie Bank, or is there something more dangerous about him? Or was there something more dangerous about him? More like a Putin, a Bolsonaro, a Duterte? Yeah. Well, you know, I don't want to fall into the, the trap of underestimating Trump, because I think um, many, many of us, including myself, um, did. And um, so I, I do think he is a virtual reality kind of a showman. Um, but he has this uncanny ability to be able to tap into a certain part of the American psyche, and um, and it is dangerous. It, cert like it certainly is. And for Marie Ivanovich to be talking about Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin in the same breath is is very chilling. We are talking with Marie Ivanovich, the author of the, I think it's the number one book, uh, Marie, this week. Congratulations on that. Lessons from the Edge. Not you're not just a, a New York Times best-selling writer, but you are a number one New York Times best-selling writer. It's a wonderful achievement. You fully deserve it. It's a tremendous book. I want to take a short break now, Marie, and then afterwards I want to talk specifically about the Ukraine, about the situation you're reading. So we'll be back in 60 seconds with Marie Yovanovitch, the author of Lessons from the Edge. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're 
listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Maria Jovanovic, the author of Lessons, Lessons from, not just a lesson, Lessons from the Edge. Uh, number one book now on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, Marie, I want to talk specifically about uh, Ukraine. Uh, over the weekend, I, I spoke with Michael Ignatiev, the great Canadian political philosopher, historian, politician, about the situation. And I was a, a, amazed, the highly liberal, principled man who argued that we can't take the nuclear option off the table in, in the Ukraine. A number of other people have agreed with Michael about the use of the N-word. What's your position on this? Uh, what do you mean by we can't take the, the, the nuclear option off the table? Using us using nukes? Us. Well, and again, I don't want to put words into Michael's mouth, but he made it clear that he thought that in terms of pushing back against the behavior of the Russians, that it's not something that is beyond the pale, that it needs to be introduced into, theoretically, into the conversation. What would be your response to that? Well, I think, you know, perhaps more broadly, I, I would answer the question by saying that I think it's important that we not take any options off the table. We need to focus on what we are doing, what we can do, what more we can do to support and save Ukraine and frankly, um, democracies around the world. Because I think this uh, war of choice, this war of aggression that Putin has launched in Ukraine is about Ukraine. It is about um, his obsession with Ukraine and gathering up, uh, as, as uh, the Russians used to say, gathering up the lands back to mother Russia. Um, because he does not believe that Ukraine is a separate country or that Ukrainians are a separate people. They're called little Russians. So it is about that. 
but um, but it's also the broader issue. Um, so that is why it matters so much to us. I think what the Biden administration is doing, what NATO, other world leaders are trying to do, is to find that narrow lane, that path, where we can help um, the Ukrainians fight and win uh, this war against Russia uh, without broadening the war. And so in order to do that, we need to keep on doing as much as we can. Now, I think when we look at what our options are, we uh, try to think about how can we do this without escalating, when it is, of course, Vladimir Putin who has escalated and escalated and escalated. Um, and so we, we are restrained in our response often. And that is a good thing because nobody wants a wider war. war. Um, but on the other hand, when dealing with a man like Vladimir Putin, um, there is risk in doing too much um, or doing the wrong things. But there is also risk in not acting boldly enough because he is a bully and he is not going to stop until he is stopped. And so how do you how do you find that narrow lane, especially when our uh, definition of what is, you know, kind of acceptable um, assistance to Ukraine and what is not? You know, that's not, you know, sort of defined in a treaty somewhere with, with the Russians. I think Putin sometimes looks at that. And first of all, he, he can make up his own mind about whether he thinks it's, quote, acceptable. And he has tried several times to tell us what is and what is not acceptable. And we cannot let him set the conditions for this war that he has started. Um, but I think he looks at some of the things that we do and sees weakness because he I think often thinks we might be pushing back a little bit harder. So finding that narrow lane and that that path changes all the time. We are doing things today that we could not have. I mean, I think many of us could not have imagined we'd be doing even, you know, two months ago. So, you know, hats off to the Biden administration for, you know, pursuing that path. It's a very diplomatic answer to a, a rather vulgar question. Um, Marie, to what extent can this crisis in Ukraine be seen as a culmination of, of Western failure in foreign policy in terms of Russia? We've done lots of shows about the Syrian debacle and, 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 and many other failures in Western foreign policy over the last 10 years. Oh, do we have a degree, we in the West and particularly in the United States, do we have a degree of responsibility or any responsibility for this catastrophe? Well, I mean, the person who bears responsibility is Vladimir Putin. I mean, period, paragraph. And um, but that said, I think that, uh, you know, back in 2008, when Putin invaded Georgia and grabbed up two chunks of Georgia uh, in 2014, when he did the same in Ukraine and illegally annexed Crimea and also fomented war in, in the East in the Donbass, um, we, I think, did not do enough. Certainly in retrospect, we didn't do enough. And I think that emboldened him and he kept on going. Uh, and so now here we are in 2022 uh, and he, you know, launched an all-out invasion of Ukraine, uh, a country that was no threat to Russia. I think we could have done more, and uh, I think we should have done more, but, but here we are, and so we need to look forward. And what do we need to be doing now? I think that's the question we need to ask ourselves. 
I, I want to come to that about what we need to do now. But did we get Putin wrong? We had a shower imagining what a scan of Putin's power-addled brain might tell us. Did we misunderstand the man? You're as a keen Putin watcher. We had Angela Stent from the Brookings Institute. We've had some of the top Putin watchers in the world on this show. Did most of us underestimate the man, at least in terms of his nerve or his stupidity? I, I, I don't know. I mean, it was pretty clear, um, you know, in the first couple of years, I mean, he came to the president, he was prime minister, and then he was Yeltsin's, you know, chosen heir. Uh, he came to the president, presidency in 2000. And he pretty early on uh, set about uh, kind of creating an autocracy. Um, of course, even as prime minister, he launched the war in, in Chechnya. That was brutal, as, as you've referred to it previously. Uh, and, you know, then he uh, went and kind of neutered the oligarchs so that they basically became, you know, his money launderers. Um, none of them really had their own private power base. Um, he went after the newspapers. He went after um, opposition leaders, uh, sometimes to, you know, shocking extent, you know, murdering them and in London and other places overseas, at, I mean, it was pretty clear who he was and what he was willing to do. Um, but I think that what, what all of us hoped was that if he was embraced in the community of nations, um, that he would not continue in those ways. And I think that hope was um, perhaps misplaced. Marie, uh, you're a former ambassador to Ukraine. I had a, another former ambassador, Stephen Pfeiffer, on the show recently, talking about his experiences, his sense of the truth about Ukraine. The truth today, though, is a remarkable one of resistance. Did you imagine this? I mean, you're Ukrainian, you have a huge experience, knowledge of the country. Does it surprise you the way in which this country has resisted Russia and Putin? Um, it doesn't, it doesn't. Uh, the, the ferocity of the resistance, um, given, you know, the scale of the attack from Russia, surprises me a little bit. But I knew, uh, I mean, we all knew, people who know Ukraine and the Ukrainian people, we knew that they would resist. And what I know now, uh, and what I know today, is that they will keep on resisting. I mean, when I talk to friends in Ukraine, they are encouraging me. <laughs> You know, they're, they're like, you know, we are here, we are going to keep on going, and you just need to help us. We will get this done. And, um, you know, I, I think that Ukrainians have a long history of battling the Russians, because this is not the first time, not the first century, that, um, that Russia has attacked Ukraine or Ukrainians. Uh, and their, you know, kind of national poet, a uh, man who lived in the 1800s, Taras, um Shevchenko, he um, has this line, and you know every school child knows it: "Fight on, and you will prevail." That's what Ukrainians are brought up on, and I think that's what you're seeing today uh, in terms of the resistance um, from everybody, whether they are a school child or an 80-year-old making Molotov cocktails um, and fighting back against, you know, the Russians who are invading their lands bombing their homes, killing their children, um, they're not going to let that stand. And we shouldn't either. 
Are we doing enough, Marie? Uh, you're no longer representing the government. Should we be creating a no-fly zone? Should we be supplying them with more planes, more weapons? Clearly, the Ukrainian government is not entirely thrilled with the West, although one can, it's hard to separate their sort of marketing language from how they really feel. But are we doing enough at the moment in uh, on uh, on March twenty eighth, twenty twenty two? We're doing a lot, and we're as I said before, we're doing um, things that were unimaginable just you know a short little while ago. But we need to keep on looking for what more we can do. I'm not a military person, so I don't know if the right thing is you know the MIGs or it's something else. But there are all sorts of creative ways that we can help the Ukrainians. Um, not only in the type of um, uh, type of equipment, uh, type of weapon, um, but in how it gets there. And um, I think, you know, obviously the Ukrainians are very focused on this issue of close the skies. There's a big debate about what is the best way to do that. We need to help them do that without question. Um, the other thing I think we really need to help them with is um, getting sure to ship missiles of some kind, because they're all these vessels, warships, bobbing around in the Sea of Azov and in the Black Sea, you know, waiting to unleash death and destruction on Ukraine. You mentioned World War II earlier. I wrote a piece actually arguing that perhaps we are overdoing the comparisons with World War II. Should we be looking backwards or forwards in terms of making sense of this struggle? Is it more like World War II or some sort of new 21st century war of illiberalism against liberalism or a war about globalization. Uh, how will future historians, do you think, think about this war? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. And I think we need to be informed by history and um, educated by both the successes and the failures of the past. But I don't think that the analysis of, you know, is it World War Three? Is it something else? Um, is going to, uh, I don't think we're going to know until we, we look back at this era. Um, I, but I do believe that it's going to be a hinge moment in history where uh, people are going to look back and they're going to remember what the world was like on February 23rd and then what happened uh, February 24th and thereafter. How we meet this moment is going to be critical in how the history is written. It's a new world now, isn't it, Marie? We're living in a world that, and we've had, again, so many conversations like this on the show. It, it's not the same world as it was in mid-February 2022. Yeah, and I think President Biden tried to make that point with the speech in, in Warsaw a couple of days ago and tried to sort of let people know what the stakes are, but also that this is not gonna be over soon. Uh, it's important we get it right, and there will be costs. The Ukrainian people are paying in blood, um, but the rest of us are, are going to also bear a cost and that we need to be ready to do that. But, you know, that's a, a difficult uh, conversation in a, in a democracy when, especially when for most people, the economy is the single biggest thing. Although um, I do think that overall, in terms of you know the three kind of pillars that our democracy rests on, security, prosperity, and freedom. What happens after February 24th 
um, is going to have a huge impact on those three pillars and every American's life. Does it worry you that there are fringe figures within the Republican Party who are not only isolationists, but seemingly sympathetic to Putin? Yeah, I, I just I, I can't explain that to myself. I have no idea why uh, why any American would use Putin's talking points, especially when they can see uh, the devastation that he's wrecking on an innocent people. So what? How how should we push back on this, particularly if it became more prominent within the Republican Party? Well, I'm not seeing that right now. I I, I think that in Washington, at least uh, in Congress. There's bipartisan support to support Ukraine and support it ro robustly. And I think that there is uh, an understanding of what is at stake. Do you think Washington, though, needs to change? Uh, it seems as if there's almost too much business as normal now in Washington, D.C. It's a new world. Do we need a new Washington, D.C.? Might we need a new State Department? Um, well, I, 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 so... Washington, D.C., when you asked the, 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 the bigger question, I was just thinking of, you know, kind of the level of partisanship and so forth that makes yeah. everything hard to do. We have important challenges, not just, you know, what is happening in Ukraine and the stakes for the free world, um, but, you know, on the economy, on the environment, on so many different things. And yet there is not the, you know, I, I look back at, you know, 40 years ago, and I imagine it as a time of when uh, Republicans and Democrats got together and you know we're seeing um, kumbaya, I'm sure it wasn't like that, but they seem to be able to get things done. And right now, I think there's a sense uh, in middle America and maybe even you know closer to Washington that uh, it's really hard to get anything done because of the just the level of divisions. So I think you know trying to address that um, is is hugely important. Um, because there is important business to be done. Um, but the right. other, um, on the State Department, I, I would certainly say there needs to be reform. You know, after the Vietnam War, uh, the Defense Department, the defense agencies, you know, took a really hard look at themselves and they reformed and it was enshrined in legislation. And the same thing happened after 9-11 with the intelligence agencies. And I think that it is long overdue for the State Department to take a look at itself um, this is an organization where we haven't had new legislation about what our mission is, what our mandate is, the resources for, uh, uh, you know, diplomacy and diplomats in the in the 21st century, not the 1950s, which, <laughs> you know, is sometimes the way it kind of feels, both in how we do our business and how we are resourced. Um, we really need to take a hard look at, uh, at a lot of things um, so that we can do, you know, the best job we can for the American people. Is Marie Ivanovich going to take a hard look at herself? Is there another chapter in this story, Marie? Especially when it comes to public service. America needs public servants like yourself. Well, thank you for that vote of confidence. I, um, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do um, after, um, after this little period. But right now, I mean, I will tell you, I am very busy um, trying to link up Ukrainians with the resources that they need. Um, in order to keep on going, um, you know, mainly focused on humanitarian assistance, of course. Well, congratulations, Marie, on the book, uh, Lessons from the Edge. As I said, it's a wonderful read, a profound, moving, important, angry. 
uh, conciliatory and certainly above all else, very much a book about the importance of public service um, and a best-selling book. Anything else, Marie, people should be reading in late March 2022? Well, I've gone back to a book that I skimmed uh, about a year ago, um, but just given the circumstances now, I've gone back to a book called Putin's People by Catherine um, Bel- Yeah, I was Bel- going to bring that one up, actually. I've had Catherine on the show. Yeah, I've never met her, um, but I just think it's a phenomenal read. Um, I I was expecting it to be kind of dry, and it's not. It's like a whodunit. Um, it, yeah. It's a. I think it's an important read in terms of um, finding out more about Putin, the people around him, and where where their money comes from and where they've hidden it. Um, but it's also a you know just a great read. Brave and a remarkably brave woman. Uh, she got sued Very in the so. London courts by Putin. I, I presume that isn't going to happen but she anymore. Won. She, uh, won the she, she deserves to win, and I think her uh, her her argument about KGB-style capitalism is is an incredibly important one. Finally, Marie Yovanovitch, uh, lessons for, author of Lessons from the Edge, former U.S. Uh, ambassador to. Ukraine, who stood up to Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, Vladimir Putin, brave woman. Uh, who, who's in charge of the world, Marie Yovanovitch, in late March 2022? Who's running the show these days? Well, you said you're not on Facebook. I'm not on social media. But as far as I can figure out from the stuff that people kind of re-forward to me, it's the TikTok influencers, including in Ukraine. 